Folks, this is Always Be Watching. There's things happening on your television screens right now that you're not watching, but you could be watching it. How do you know what to watch? Come see this here podcast. We'll explain how it works. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm going to talk about two shows this week that you might be interested in checking out. I'm going to talk about season two of Mystery Road. And also I'm going to talk about a new Netflix series called Unorthodox. I'm joined each and every darn freaking week by Chris Yates. He's here. Chris, what are you talking about this week? Hi, Dan. How are you going? Well, I wanted to do a little bit different this week. I know you hate it when I change it up, but um, I just wanted to talk about... Chris, we have a format for a reason, goddammit. I wanted to talk about some of the programming that I've been um, watching and enjoying and hating um, that has been produced in social isolation around the world, um, including uh, the uh, Tiger King extra episode that was released. And then I just wanted to talk a little bit more generally about some other stuff. I hope that's okay with you this week. Look, it's not, but we're going to make do. It's, 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 these are interesting, (laughs) difficult times, Dan. We've got to be, we've got to do different things. No, this is where I just hold steadfast to everything (laughs) that I know and feel comfortable with. Look, we all deal with it in our own different ways and I'm I'm completely on board with what you're doing. Um, Just going to not do it. At this stage of the podcast, I'm not dealing with it, but how about we play the theme song and we'll see how I feel after that. Do it. Okay, here we go. Theme song. Chris, that theme song, I've got to say, it's changed everything. My outlook on life, radically different. I've seen things, I've come to terms with me as a person, as a spiritual being, as a um, as an intellectual, a quasi-intellectual. And, I'm you know, glad you added that, quasi. As, as a romantic, sorry, quasi-romantic. <laughs> quasi, again, I'm glad you added quasi, yes. As a sexual dynamo, no quasi. It's just oh, a blatant God. fact. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Chris, let me tell you a few things that's going to make this here podcast an explicit podcast. Great. When a man loves a woman. No, <laughs> let's not do that. You're not ready. Chris, but you know what you are ready for? TV. We're going to talk about TV stuff. I've got a really good way of um, segueing to that by asking you. I, I thought the end of that sentence was, I've got a really good way of not participating in this podcast anymore. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, I'm, that's always in the back of my mind. But um, no, I was thinking, I was really wondering, you know, you're a, you're a learned guy. You've watched a lot of television. Um, yeah, sure. What, I've participated in television university. Um, what have you been watching this week? Chris, I'm really glad you asked. I've been watching season two of a show called Mystery Road. It's got no head. Tides washed it in here. How long ago was the body team? You see the look they're giving us on the street like we're the criminals. Like he deserved it. He didn't deserve to die. You're the reason why I can't catch a break. You're the reason why your daughter is gone. You keep chasing death, Jay. One day you'll get it. Now, Chris, Mystery Road, it's been a movie. It's been a follow-up movie. It's been a TV show. And now it's the second season of a TV show. Have you seen any of the Mystery Road? No. Okay. So, <laughs> pretty much. Okay. Well, the entire Not, only, not is, only have I not seen it, I've got no idea what you're talking about. How good really? is that? Really? Okay. This seems like the sort of show that I thought that your partner may have made you watch at some point. <laughs> no, not yet, but maybe yeah. that's still to come. Okay, so Mystery Road as a concept. So I love the film Mystery Road. I think it was such a smart piece of cinema. This is a film that came out, I don't have the year in front of me, but I want to say it's maybe like about 2011, 2012-ish. So relatively recent. The premise of it is, it's kind of like a, uh, it hems very closely to a lot of Western tropes. So it's very much about a police officer kind of comes into town Nobody really trusts him. He doesn't really trust anyone. And despite the fact that everyone's kind of against him, he goes out to do the right thing. And, you know, at the very end of the film, there's some sort of a shootout that takes place. Okay. It feels so much like an American Western in every possible way. But what's unique about this, set in the Australian outback with an indigenous sheriff, effectively, police officer, and he's dealing with uh, drugs and other sort of illegal activities taking place like out in the middle of, you know, the outback. Mm. Okay. So it really takes Western tropes, applies it to a very traditional Australian setting. Now that's interesting for a number of reasons. 
Okay. But I would also, I would suggest that the most interesting thing I thought about it is that if you think about Australian cinema, Australian cinema is so heavily built on the ideas of the myths of the outback. And this is taking a genre of film, which we've seen so many times before, but isn't an Australian genre by any means. And it sort of blends them together. It's like this pastiche of American traditional Western crossed with Australian outback romanticism. If you were pitching this show to me right now, I would say, take my money. This is a great idea. Yeah, No, it's a fantastic idea. So if you watch that film, it is just a stellar, like amazing sort of two hours of cinema. It's pretty unforgettable. Now, despite the fact that I really liked that first film, I never saw the sequel. It's called Goldstone. Apparently it's quite good. I've never heard anyone say it's better than Mystery Road, but you know, it is what it is. I keep meaning to watch it at some point. Sure. Yeah. Now, in 2018, they thought, hey, look, let's take Mystery Road as a movie and adapt it into a TV series. So it became this eight-episode TV show that aired on the ABC in Australia. And everything that I thought about the movie makes perfect sense for the TV show. And so the two previous movies, like while there's definitely the narrative thread of the police officer carrying through both movies, entirely different cast taking place. Sure. It's like an entirely new sort of thing. So he rocks up into town. The thing with the TV show is that it's decided to sort of uh, build upon the world of this police officer. And so while in the first film, his ex-wife and daughter are characters in the film, in the second film, they're not present. But they brought them back for the TV show. And this is where I think that the wheels fall off the wagon entirely. Right. Okay. So I feel that with the adaptation of Mystery Road into a TV series, it, like I think it maybe tries to eat its cake, uh, have its cake and eat it too. So it takes everything that really works about the movie, but then tries applying it into a serialized drama format with a character who, for all intents and purposes, is actually fairly unlikable because he's such a cold, rigid person who has like a sense of moral absolutism about him. Sure. He doesn't really let anyone in and he doesn't really exhibit sort of much personality. Okay. Like you can see what his moral code is. And I think that works really well for a two hour film. You apply that to a TV show though. And I think that that character becomes really hard to actually want to be heavily invested in. You want to support what he stands for, but you can't really necessarily support him. And when every other character is a potential evildoer, because there's always a mystery involved that puts the mystery in mystery road, Chris, because <laughs> yes. there's always a mystery involved. Like it's hard to really sort of find an attachment to anyone that is built up as characters that you're not supposed to trust and possibly have some sort of undercurrent of evil lurking within them. Yeah. Yeah. So the characters around aren't necessarily built as characters that you can latch onto. You've got a protagonist that you can't really necessarily latch onto. And you've got a mystery, which is usually not necessarily even the most exciting of mysteries. It's about the journey that you go on to discover what the mystery is about. Yes. You apply that to an eight episode run and suddenly you're looking at close to eight hours of telling this one story and it starts stretching it pretty thin. The first series as, a, uh, as an idea, just as something to try out, really cool but now in 2020 we got season two of this show and i'm watching the first episode i'm like well i've kind of already seen this what more are you bringing to the table and this is where it's really lost me at this point because it's taken the movie it's just stretched it out and it's done it a second time now and i'm just kind of stuck just wondering like what's going on and the problem is the production values in this are gorgeous you've got these amazing vistas of you know the outback and you've got this amazing that are in place, top-notch acting, top-notch just production across the board. You've got the actual scripts themselves are strong, but they're just kind of attached to a mechanism that I just don't think works as a TV show. It's really interesting. So often I will see a film and um, I will go, you know, especially if it's something I really enjoy and it sounds like you really enjoyed the the first Mystery Road film Mm. and I will uh, yearn for it to be a longer, more drawn out um, saga that I can kind of sink my teeth into and, and wallow around in a bit more. But you're, you're not saying that's how you felt on actually watching this one. So the actual setting for this, I think probably speaks to the heart of what really works about Mystery Road, which is that, and what works about Westerns generally, is that you're working in an environment where there's actually no boundaries that take place. So the further that you get out into the outback or the wild west or wherever, you're suddenly finding there's a sense of outlawness because people aren't necessarily hemmed in by civilization as much. So people are a bit more free just to be themselves. People get a little bit wild. People get a little bit strange. And that's kind of what's fun about the genre. And so when you've got Mystery Road with this character who's got such an absolute 
like clear-minded idea as to what's right and wrong and where that sort of moral boundary lies. You've got this guy who's trying to implement the boundaries everywhere in an environment where there certainly aren't any boundaries. And in the show, in it's being placed in Gideon, which has like no real boundaries at all. Like really, that tension should be like just pop, like palpable through it. I just didn't feel it at all through this. It just kind of felt like it was going through the motions as to what a Mystery Road story is. How much of Mystery Road season two have you seen? Look, only the first episode. I, I can't, part of me wants to keep on sticking with the show because I've had such a good time with Mystery Road in the past. But at the same time, I also had some real issues with that last, with the TV season of Mystery Road for season one. Right. And while I sat through that, I didn't really necessarily love it in the way that I had the film. And yeah. so I'm wondering, am I really just setting myself up for another seven hours of going through the motions because I have an attachment to the film rather than necessarily enjoying what it does as a TV show? And I'm not too sure. I probably will watch it. I'm just not too sure at this point. Well, fair enough. Well, I definitely am going to check out the film. Uh, that sounds like something I really should have watched a long time ago. And um, I'm actually going to even make a little note of it right now. And you can see that I'm doing that via the camera. Well, I can see that you've got your quill and you just dipped it into some ink. And as you've taken Quill's parchment. I'm actually writing a letter to the Lord of the County, uh, expressing my disgust at the potholes that my horse and carriage keep getting stuck in. Um, no, but no, it's, but it sounds great. And, and it's interesting to hear your uh, take on that way that's come across as, as, as this uh, series. And they're very interesting, um, brutal criticisms you have of it. You were talking about the idea that when you watch a movie, sometimes you want to luxuriate in the world that it's created. Sometimes I feel quite the opposite with TV shows where I'll be watching it. And the big question I have is, why is the story a serialized TV show? You're not necessarily making, taking advantage of the serialized nature of TV. Yeah you're not necessarily taking advantage of the sort of world building that TV can enable you to do. Instead, you're really just applying the idea of just stretching out a narrative until, you know, you've met the episode um, quota that you agreed upon with the production company and the network that's funded it for you. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily feel authentic to the TV experience. And often I'll be watching a whole bunch of TV shows. The big question I have is why on earth is this a TV show? Why is it a 90 minute movie? which would be much better serviced because you don't really have that yeah. much more than your initial idea and the thematic idea you're trying to get across. Like it's just not textually rich enough. And I'm kind of feeling that with Mystery Road at this point where it just doesn't quite feel that it needs to be a TV show. It would be just as well served as a movie and maybe much more powerful for it. Very interesting. So Mystery Road is on ABC, is that right? That's correct. So season two debuts this Sunday night on ABC. You can probably find the first season around the place but my strong recommendation would be go and check out the original film and probably at sequel Goldstone. Yeah, I definitely will do both of that. And then if, um, yes, and, and if my interest is peaked enough to watch the show, I'll jump in at the start and see how I go. Yeah. Thanks for that, Dan. But Chris Yates, while I'm talking about a show which is maybe fit a square peg fitting into a round hole, you've been watching some genre-busting. Um, oh, is God. it genre or is it necessarily like production... I think it's like busting. Yeah, I don't know what it is really. Like it's such, it's also new and interesting. Um, but I think that um, the thing will, if we want to base this around anything, let's talk about how um, Netflix have dropped a new episode of Tiger King, following on from the um, very popular uh, documentary series, which is very, very different in tone. So I think the best way to frame this is by introing the. Um, actual episode of the Netflix series, The Tiger King, which is called The Tiger King and I. So we've gathered some of the key players for a look back at the twists and turns of the Tiger King saga, and we'll find out where their lives have taken them since the show ended. What is it like outside the mulleted realm of Joe Exotic? How does it feel when the world turns you into a meme? And is the Wi-Fi signal at their home strong enough for a one-on-one interview? Hmm. Those questions and more are about to be answered. This is The Tiger King and I. Now, Chris, I was particularly interested in this show because they filmed it in the uh, current COVID-19 shutdown. And the one line that I read from, because it's Joel McHale who's hosting this, right? Correct. The one line I heard from him was that he and the producers didn't want to do a show that felt like it was a COVID-19 shutdown where people are appearing via Zoom or Skype and then having that sort of conversation. They wanted it to feel like it was actually just something that was produced, like it could have happened at any point. 
Does that feeling come through? <laughs> no, not at all. It's, made, it's very much, it's very much uh, the entire program is completely indebted to the fact that that's exactly what's happened and that's how it's going on. The interviewees all mention it, I'm pretty sure, um, because it's obviously affecting their lives in a big way at the time. Then um, why the hell did that quote get given? This is I have, no, I have no idea. Like it literally is set up like a Zoom screen um, for most of the show with the people he's going to talk to sort of, placed in boxes around it. Um, and I mean, Mikhail makes a joke at the start about it. he's very, you know, self-effacing and very funny. Um, of course, from community, I was talking about him the other day to somebody and they were like, Oh, who's this guy? And I'm like, I forget that he's not the most famous person in the world to everybody, but, um, did, yes, he was, did you mention <laughs> his E show, the soup, the, the soup, of course I did. Um, which also went across to Netflix. I remembered, uh, for a brief period there in a weird well, way. It wasn't the soup, was it, the it was soup? the Joel no, McHale was, show. That's right, the Joel McHale show, obviously, yes, which was very, very different um, to the soup in that it was exactly yeah. the same and had a different name. But so no, it's different. very much, it's very much um, through the lens of this thing. I mean, he makes a joke at the start about how, you know, um, he pitched the idea to Netflix for the cost of an iPhone and that's what they sent him and got him to do it. Um, it does look like it was all shot in one day unless he just kept putting the same clothes on. And it's also like, it's just so funny watching this stuff. So I guess the first thing that's really striking is that it just looks like a zoom call. Like it's got slightly better lighting. He's in a, he's, he's up against a, he's a sort of positioned himself weirdly against this corner of a room. And it's when, when you start seeing all this stuff on the TV shows, like with presenters and stuff that you're very familiar with in these um, professional TV shows. And you see just little things that are just not right. Like backgrounds, not being, you know, flat and, it just really, uh, it really um, makes it hard to ignore what's going on. And like you, you realize that maybe even if he's had some assistance there, there's obviously been nobody there with lighting and, you know, it's still come, it still just looks like he's shooting himself in his room. Okay. I um, want to get back to that thought in just a yeah, moment. Yeah. Uh, but the actual show itself, if you're a fan of uh, Tiger King, is this a worthwhile like thing to you spend some time on? I think you've definitely got to check it out. Like it's, uh, you know, because obviously what you're caught up in in Tiger King is the stories, these weirdos, these people, um, and the way the show ends. It's it, For me, it sort of fizzed out a little bit at the end, like all the real big revelations and all the really um, WTF moments kind of came in the first sort of four or so episodes, I'd, I'd say in the first half where it just keeps unfolding and it's just kind of, it just keeps getting more and more ridiculous and the scenario keeps getting more insane and the characters keep getting more, more just large, larger than life and just totally off the wall that you kind of get caught in this, um, constantly just you know, face palming yourself going, how can this be true? That by the time it kind of gets the, to, to the point of the story where, they're leading up to the present situation. It kind of, you know, it does fizzle out a little bit because obviously the, the conclusions there, it was very easy for people to find out. So there wasn't a real way to build tension towards the end there. I don't think um, Joe exotic, the tiger King, of course, in jail now um, missing out on his celebrity that he so craved his entire life. Um, although there's apparently of course talks about how he's going to do something from in there, but it really felt like, uh, the, the, the main thing it felt like was obviously Netflix were trying to cash in a little bit more on the unprecedented success of the Tiger King. And especially I think the conversations I had when I talked about the show last on here, um, you know, it was all compounded by the fact, I think that everybody was really, that a large percentage of people anyway, were or Netflix users were like very much desperate for this kind of escapist weirdo realism happening out, out there in the real world somewhere else to some other weird kind of people while we're all locked down in our houses and, you know, um, having this very different experience. So I think that's had a lot to do with why they've decided to make this other episode and why even despite the fact that it's just kind of like, it's insane putting it in the same category as this program that's been worked on for five years. So I've, I've watched a couple of episodes since we talked about it. Oh, good. And because when we discussed it, it was like right at the sort of beginning of it becoming a bit of a sensation. And I yeah. just mentioned that I'd heard everyone talking about it, but they were all culture writers and people who are just kind of, you know, they're always looking for that things to talk about. And so yeah. they all latched onto it, but I didn't see like the normies really talking about it. Um, that's obviously changed now. I'm actually seeing a lot of people just generally talking about it. But you presented that idea that it was kind of the exact show for the right moment. And I was kind of looking for that within the program while watching it. And the one thing I really noticed is that the entire premise of the first episode, and it's certainly a thread that continues through it, is just that conversation about should the tigers be locked up in the environments that they're in? 
And so for an hour, you're watching this conversation going back and forth about people who are in two different camps. So you've got the Joe Exotic camp who are just like, you know what, Tigers, like just put them everywhere. It doesn't really matter as long as like no one's getting their arms taken off, which, you know, does happen. Uh, as long as that's not really happening, you know, it's all fine as long as, you know, if they're getting food. But then you've got people like uh, Carol. Is that her name? Carol Baskin. Yeah, Carol Baskin. Uh, she's so, someone who's got like a much more professional habitat sort of place in. So I'm just thinking about all these people who are watching this conversation happening as to what the right way is to confine these animals while everyone's confined in their own homes and looking to try to find that escape. And so I'm just wondering like how much of it is just like this primal need within us to be able to sort of long for living in a Joe Exotic world as opposed to the Carol world that we're actually in. <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting idea. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why it resonated so hard, but right, um, and also, I mean, much like, so at my house, there's a lot of Uber Eats being dropped off to the house and right. I'm thinking in Carol's enclosure as well, there's a lot of delicious people and ex-husbands <laughs> that are being eaten. So, you know, parallels. Um, what was, what was really interesting, of course, is who they didn't interview on this thing. So I think with this uh, thing, it was a very much a chance. I felt like they also wanted to give some people a chance that maybe didn't get a lot, uh, a chance to, to chat themselves very off very much so the main person um who i feel like got a little bit of redemption from it was um the zookeeper who uh in the in the documentary series he comes across as a little bit of a uh it looks like he's he's kowtowing to joe exotic it looks like he might be a bit of a you know doing anything that joe says and he seems like a bit of a fan of joe and i really got the way the impression that the way the interview started and the way it all kicked off was that he definitely felt cheated by that display of him and I guess because he's not a very um um, not a very out there kind of person um and quite an introverted person that he probably didn't get a lot of his personality across to the documentary makers and probably didn't suit their narrative either to have him as somebody who probably had a bit of a mind of his own but he was very very adamant in um his hatred uh and glee at the fact that joy at the fact that um Joe Exotic was in jail so it also gave the opportunity for some other people, I think, to uh, clear the air somewhat, including the new, um, the new park owners who, you know, Joe Exotic definitely tried to put across as um, the villains of the thing that came and took away his um, park. And it felt like that a bit for, um, it, it, it did feel like, uh, because of the narrative, it did feel a little bit like that was what had happened and that poor old Joe Exotic had been, um, had been uh, stitched up or something, but um, Jeff and Lauren Love, uh, Lauren Lau are the um, names of the new park owners. But really, like, I don't know. When you took away all the kind of narrative building and the music and the score and the sensationalism of how it was edited, it all seemed pretty clear that uh, yeah, Joe is a nut job. These people all kind of got caught up in his um, orbit for a variety of reasons and an interest in working with animals and all this kind of stuff. And um, they uh, and and they wanted the opportunity, I think, to kind of like distance themselves a bit, or at least have an opportunity to kind of go like, "No, nah, no, nah, we hate that guy as much as you do," sort of thing, or we think he's we we think he's terrible, or whatever. So it was really, really a, a kind of an interesting way to get all them back. There was definitely a lot of talk about how. Um, you know, there was a lot of talking shit about the documentary makers and how they'd everyone been cheated, felt like they'd been cheated, which is, of course is a thing that happens, I think, in just about every documentary ever. But it was interesting hearing it coming from the people that in, even in the documentary kind of came across as the good guys. Um, fascinatingly or not so, Carol Baskin doesn't appear and neither does her, hus- neither does her husband Howard. But there was this, um, as soon as you try to kind of search for anything Tiger King related at the moment, you would see Howard Baskin has done this um, to camera piece that's on the uh, Facebook page for the uh, Cats Foundation that Carol runs, where it's very much um, him very, at, at first, very awkwardly trying to like explain some of the things that he thinks have been beat up. But then it becomes this very kind of heartfelt, interesting video. And once you get into his very unprofessional rhythm, watching it, um, and they, they show some sort of shots of the zoo in a different way that you don't see them and the other thing. And they just kind of like talk about a few of the things that were blown out of proportion, um, including the fact that, uh, you know, the, the questions are raised about whether Carol killed her husband. 
which of course they were assured was not going to be an issue in the documentary. Mm. Um, but it really, cha- it really turned into this thing where it was like, we, we, I was reflecting on it with my partner the next day and we were talking about the show and how weird it was, the catch up show and how strange that they got Howard back in for it. And then it was like, Oh no, actually hang on. That was this other thing we watched after that wasn't even part of it. Um, and it really illustrated the kind of ways that this new media sort of works where things can really, you know, that, that narrative thread can run between all these different things. And because the soup catch uh, because of the soup catch up, because of the, um, John McHale catch up show was shot in the way it was shot so unprofessionally and, and so, um, DIY bedroom style that it, you know, the, the Howard footage kind of blurred in with it. It was a really interesting take on all that kind of thing I thought. And it was just fascinating that, um, on a very basic level, something so, so low budget could be presented as part of the package of this documentary series, which has obviously taken many years to make. And, you know, Netflix, Netflix shamelessly adding it as a sort of a final episode to the series. Oh, I thought it was, I, th- I thought it was surely fascinating and I wasn't going to see anything weirder than that all week until I saw Saturday Night Live doing a program <laughs> via a very similar mechanism. What Did you catch any of the SNL special? Oh, look, I have a, let's call it a struggle, watching a lot of uh, SNL <laughs> these days. Uh, like I don't mind the really classic stuff from the late 70s and like some of the early 80s stuff. And then the stuff that I kind of know is like really from the early 90s. So I can rewatch some of that stuff and be fine with it. But man, modern day SNL, not for me. But I just thought it was really interesting what they actually did with the construction of it, which was everyone's isolated in our own apartments around the place. And so everyone was actually doing sketches from within their apartments. So they're all like zoom based sketches and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it was weird and it was awkward and it was horrible, but was it more weird and awkward and horrible than regular Saturday night live? It's hard to say really at this point. Um, yeah. Was- I mean, I like the novelty factor. Like I don't think I'd want to watch that on a weekly basis. No, I don't think anyone would or could. But, um, and I think, you know, obviously if this was going to be a thing that happened for a more prolonged period of time, you know, it's interesting to think about that. I like to have a little fantasy about what would actually happen if, you know, are people going to start then, you know, would people get a bit more professional about it? Would people start, you know, looking into lighting and thinking about things like how they could, you know, make their room look better? I'm shocked it didn't happen more on a level for some of these big productions anyway that are already coming through. But I guess it's just happening. It's just happening so fast, I guess. But like SNL, I mean, even though like the idea of, oh, it's happening so fast, these are still TV shows being produced by large-scale broadcasters. Like there's no reason why you can like, okay, so I work in an office job and I got an email from the organization that manages the building and they said, hey, look, everyone's working from home. There's OH&S issues that need to take place. So we've organized a large number of chairs and monitors that we can distribute <laughs> around the place. Yeah, so yeah. I had to be at home on a specific afternoon and I got a computer monitor to drop off my house. I could have gotten an office chair, whatever. Why is NBC not driving around to these stars' houses and dropping <laughs> off some like decent cameras, which, you know, that seems like a pretty basic thing. And also like a bit of audio gear and having Maybe. a technician come in and just set up something for them. I know it seems crazy and maybe they were and it's still like that's the distance that you know even in a home studio that you can kind of get compared to what the glitz and glamour of you know proper big budget tv in a studio looks like but I don't think so like I really feel like it was still kind of done in a very half-assed way. Like it's very much a half-assed way like you watch YouTube and there's amateurs like yourself and me who are like out there producing stuff that looks a lot better from their own lounge rooms. Well, this is something that you'd said um, I thought was very interesting from the um, Colbert Report and the Jimmy Kimmel and the likes and the, you know, going back a few weeks now when they still obviously were thinking they could go ahead with the show and they were recording their intros at the start. And I think in your newsletter, you put a, that thing about how like, you know, how, how possibly can, you know, the Stephen Colbert people not get something to him to produce something a little bit better <laughs> that's going to go on TV for millions of people. Well, that was my thing. So I'm a huge fan of late night chat shows like that. Like the US late night talk show format is something that I'm just gaga for. I really dig it. The thing is that the reason why that's a successful format is because there's a sense of complete, like consistency and complacency that you have as a viewer. You're not being challenged by what you're watching because these things air at 1130 at night, starting time generally. And the idea is that you fall asleep on the couch while watching them. 
And I've done yeah. that successfully many times. So, you know, <laughs> operation well done. But watching the Colbert thing, I actually found that because it started happening on the week where I was feeling just incredibly depressed about everything that was happening in the world. And watching this really low production thing with Colbert sitting there with what was probably an iPhone recording it, really low sound, really badly framed, just wasn't really doing anything. Like, I just kind of felt like, you know, the world is definitely over. Like, it's... Like if, if, <laughs> if this they can't TV even show that's going out to millions yeah. of people can't actually get their gear together to do something that's actually substantial, like surely this is a sign that it's over with. But We're then, doomed. like, they went on holidays and came back, and all the show hosts kind of came back with the same sort of ethos, which is that we're going to set up a established place in our homes where we're recording these things. And so there is actually now a look of consistency and sameness that happens night in, night out. And so it's actually brought some sense and order back to late night TV, which I kind of I'm like. Glad. Yeah. But I guess I'm glad what's for your been sake. enjoyable for my sake, yeah. What's been enjoyable about this is actually seeing one where they're shooting. So for yeah. example, Colbert, you were talking about the idea that traditionally you have a flat background and you know, there's yeah. that sort of sameness going on. Colbert's very deliberately positioned his thing where he's sitting in the corner of his room. And so like there's yeah, a really right. weird dimensionality to it. But what's paid more interest than that is watching where Colbert's recording, where your various Jimmys are recording and whatnot. Because you've got this thing where these are all very well-paid people who live in gorgeous homes, but you can definitely see, and the SNL people as well, you can definitely see they have positioned their cameras in a place that does not highlight anything that looks nice in their homes at all. They are trying to look like everyday Joe American citizens. They don't necessarily want to show off the opulence of their homes the exact opposite of what everybody else is trying to do when they're setting up their zoom. Exactly. Michael Che, who's one of the SNL guys, I think he's on the news desk. Yeah. He, uh, I think his grandmother had died of like COVID-19 related um, issues. So incredibly sad, but he tweeted today about how he paid the rent for everyone who was living in her building for the month. And like, it wasn't a fancy building by any means, but it just shows that if he can afford to do that, and it certainly wasn't a lot of money, but it was still substantial enough. Yeah, yeah. If he can yeah. afford to do that, like he's probably living in some pretty decent digs. <laughs> he could probably have better than a shower curtain in the background. Absolutely. Um, behind so his thing. The most interesting thing in the background isn't necessarily what they're showing you, it's what they're not showing you. And um, just as a point of comparison as well, if you think about Real Time with Bill Maher, which is a show that airs on HBO, a big thing about Bill Maher's shtick is that he'll always just talk about like the very nice house he lives in and the uh, life of you know wealth and you know just everything that's been afforded him. He'll regularly talk about that fairly openly and honestly, which I kind of like about him. But when he's been doing his show, he's recording it from his backyard and it is a nice looking backyard. So yeah, like, he's not yeah. hiding anything. He's the only host who's actually out there showing it as it is. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of uh, months or so, depending on how long all this stuff um, pans out. But I, um, yeah, I just really wanted to kind of talk about some of those different things, especially based on the, on, on the idea of, you know, like this Tiger King thing is obviously massive money, massive business for Netflix. And they literally got away with producing something on an iPhone, um, which is pretty amazing. Look, a really interesting uh, comparison point as well is on the show last week, I was talking about Quibi, which is the new streaming yes. service that's only uh, available on your mobile phone. They've got a component of the service, which is what they call Quibi Essentials, which are short little like news and entertainment pieces where it's just a very traditional person talking to the camera about whatever the topic is. So some of it, there's like a BBC News one, there's a woman who just talks about what happened on the late night TV shows the night before. Uh, there's one by Rotten Tomatoes. So it's like just a pretty basic conversational thing. Yeah, sure. This service, which they have pumped like a billion plus dollars into for its launch, it's launched as people are being self-isolated. And so all yeah. these like hosts for like day one, they're recording it from their lounge rooms. So like they yeah, don't well. even have like the point of comparison saying, oh, you know, sorry, we're not in a nicer thing. You know how we usually look. But really, like yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. from a standpoint of having a crappy production to launch was a very big major streaming service. And it's just kind of interesting to see like the fact that they're doing this, but it kind of works for them because it's on a mobile phone that you're watching it. Sure, and yeah, so you're yeah. used to production of that level from YouTube videos. And so it's actually kind of acceptable in a way that I don't think it is on a 65-inch TV. I think it's testing the limits of what we all consider acceptable as far as that kind of um, broadcast quality, which has obviously changed a lot over the last few years anyway, and it's going to continue to do so. Obviously, consumer grade, consumer grade tech is getting better and better. Like, you know, you've got a top of the line iPhone now. You can basically shoot a feature film on it, right? 
but um yeah there's, there's it's it's fun in this transition stage i guess trying to kind of watch how that happens yeah anyway chris let's- so that's um so let's say yes tiger king netflix Tiger King and I, Joel McHale, love Joel McHale. Should have probably said that right at the start. How good's Joel? He's so funny. And so that's streaming now. Streaming right now in many houses. I was particularly into the show where it is just a example of a TV show just being a quick, tidy little production, which isn't necessarily doing anything particularly sort of groundbreaking, but within the framework of what it's actually doing is doing some very interesting things. So Unorthodox is a story about a woman who is in a she's in a marriage that she wants to get out of. Culturally, it's difficult for her to leave that marriage, but she ends up uh, fleeing the country and is trying to find her mother who has been gone for a while. So we've kind of seen stories like that and often they're framed within sort of very specific sort of cultural groups. What's unique about Unorthodox is that it takes that very traditional story uh, device that we've you know seen that a number of times, but the cultural group that it really focused on is something that I've never seen on TV before. This story takes place initially in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, focused on the New York Hasidic Jewish community. And I've never seen that before. And it's interesting to see a story that's set in very much contemporary times. But if you're familiar with that as a cultural group, it's got some very traditional um, behaviors, which are really in complete contrast to the way that modern people generally tend to live their lives. So there's periods of time where they're not supposed to do any work for themselves. So I think it's usually from sundown on Fridays through the weekend. And I don't know if this is an every thing. It sounds very blissful, but they're not supposed to do any work. And often they'll hire people to like just be in their homes during that time to turn on lights for them and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's just a really interesting scene right at the beginning where the woman who's like about to flee her marriage and flee this community because she's not originally from that community. She's kind of been brought in. Yeah. Okay. And obviously it's not something that she feels comfortable with after a number of years of doing it. Um, So she wants to leave, but it's on this day where no one's really able to do anything that is perceived to being work. So she's about to leave with like her bag sort of wrapped around her arm and she's about to leave the building. And all the women are looking at her saying, well, you can't really go out. And they don't actually explain what it is, but you just see in the next scene that she goes upstairs and leaves her bag behind. But because she's left her bag behind, then she's no longer seen as like engaging in sort of struggle, actual work of carrying that bag. They never explicitly say that. It's really just something that you kind of have to intuit from yeah, the behavior. Sure. That's something that's not really accepted. And that's kind of what I thought was fascinating about it. It's a show that gives you like the absolute bare minimum of road signs telling you how to necessarily engage with this text. A lot of it's in Yiddish, which I've never seen like an entire show in Yiddish before. The occasional scene, sure. But like outside of seeing Five-ish Finkel on screen, you don't really see that much Yiddish really totally. being presented on American television. Just incredibly fascinating. Uh, the story takes her over to Germany, which is where her mother is. She gets involved in some, with some university students and an arts um, conservatorium there. And the storyline is about her finding her freedom. Meanwhile, her husband is running around Williamsburg trying to find her. He's engaged his cousin, who seems like he's a bit more world-weary than he's sort of really let on. And so as the two of them, so it's kind of like a detective story as they're trying to find out what's happened to his wayward wife sure. and just them sort of uh, battling the need to be able to find answers in a culture like that, which is kind of very much about clamping down and anything that's not seen as traditional and them just trying to get to the hardest to exactly what's happened. And so him, who's very much a sheltered person is kind of having to really confront a lot of things about the way that his world operates as he's doing it fascinating stuff i've only seen the first of four episodes and it's only four episodes yeah that's really it's a interesting tiny little miniseries yeah i love the idea of the four episode miniseries can we have more of them well yeah i mean this is, and like netflix i think is a perfect venue for it and unlike mystery road like everything feels a little bit serialized and it just felt very episodic tv wise which it's just great to see yeah um do you think it will be uh, did you think it will get, get another series is, is the story going to keep continuing 
Well, I don't think so, but I mean, I've only seen the first chapter of Force. I mean, I don't quite know how it ends, sure. but to me, this feels like a very sort of personal human story that doesn't necessarily need to keep on going. That would be lovely as well, wouldn't it? A nice short little, <laughs> the short little long story <laughs> that we could uh, wrap our heads around and get it into it. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm 100% on board. I reckon my partner will watch that, um, which is, is rare. So that will be a nice thing for us to do together. So thanks, Dan, for bringing me some companionship time with my partner at this point time, <laughs> with your recommendations this is, what I'm about. this is what i'm all about if every day when things are going well for your partner and you <laughs> if you're not thanking me during that then i haven't done my job properly i do it too many times a day to mention you would be totally shocked um <laughs> so that's uh unorthodox on netflix that's right streaming now so Dan, all four glorious episodes all four glorious yes, episodes. so we have a little thing running now where we're doing a little quiz for each other um, yes, sir. Last week I came to the table with five questions, too sh- too few. Um, so, in the interest of keeping things rolling, I'm, I've I've prepared another five questions for you. Fantastic. Now, last week it was about a subject which was clearly designed to completely destroy me, <laughs> which was uh, rap stars on television. Is this the same subject matter or All right, so shifting? I'm, I'm, I'm still in the musical zone, but I'm trying to take it into a place where I'm pretty sure you're going to get a couple of these. Hopefully, it'll uh, we'll, we'll see how we go. I've given you a couple of free kicks and then a couple that I think maybe you'll have to think about more. And it's also- I will say- <laughs> From week one, there was 10 questions and I believe you got four, right? I need to go back to the scorecard to check that. Uh, so you've got Last to get... week, there were five questions. <laughs> I got none right. So you were definitely well ahead of me at this stage. Um, I just worry that's just going to make it uh, make you make it more hard. But anyway, we'll see how we go. <laughs> the, the category, Dan, I've chosen for you um, in a very unjeopardy way where you don't get to choose the category is who wrote the theme song to? Okay. So what is theme songs? So theme songs being the, 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 the entry song in a television show, the start song of a TV show. Yeah. What is TV shows? Oh yes. I know what you're doing. Yes. What yeah, is like TV Jeopardy? Things? Yes. Uh, Jeopardy. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I'm just wetting my whistle. Um, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll choose the category quotient quotables. <laughs> okay. So here we go with your, with your first quote unquotable. Who wrote the theme song to the wire? Oh, God. I mean, obviously, you've got five different versions of Down in the Hole. Uh, I'm presuming the writer of it was the performer of the first season. And I am trying to work out who the first season performer is. No, I'm gonna I, don't, I don't think that's... I don't, I'd have to double check, but I think the original version didn't show up until about the third or fourth season. But it was actually... Oh, it was probably season two then. So it was... Um, oh, gosh. Um, You'll kick yourself. I know you know this. N- yeah. I absolutely know the guy. It's got the gravelly voice. It's, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Rattles the chains. Yeah. Rattles some chains together. Yeah, Stars in some movies. I, yeah, he's got the album cover, which is the parody of uh, Nighthawk Diner. It's um, Tom Waits from his album Tom Frank's Waits. Wild Years. We just gotta keep the devil way down in the hole. Um, but yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see there where that actually um, does show up. That's season two. Um, is it season two that Tom Waits does? I will, I will confirm it's season two, yeah, the Tom right. Waits version. Well, you knew that. Yeah. I should have actually asked. Well, that would have, if I had have asked a much more difficult question, you would have got it right. <laughs> okay, next one. Who wrote the theme song to Different Strokes? Now the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. What might be right for you may not be right for some. Um, I'm just going to say that it was, I want to say it's Alan Thicke, but I don't know if that's completely right. He did a lot of like theme songs from like a little bit later on. I think that might've been a bit early for him. I'm not too sure. Go with your gut, Dan. Alan Thicke. Yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was Alan Thicke. He wrote a whole bunch of, um, the, the, of course, the star of uh, Growing Pains. He probably did other mm. things as well, but I, in our universe, I'm sure we only know him as the star of Growing Pains, the dad. Nothing notable. Um, and yeah, he wrote a bunch of theme songs. Like I think at the, I, I always thought originally that it was at the like before he became an actor, but I think he was doing it at the same time. I think it was just like something he did it as well, which is interesting. Oh, absolutely. So he was 
like he, I think his career was necessarily not necessarily as a as a actor. It was really sort of as a TV presenter and like doing sort of comedic type uh, things. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So, um, so I think he saw himself more as a broadcaster than necessarily as an actor. But I think there was a bit of crossover with both. I'm going to give you that one, Dan. I reckon you definitely got that one right. Um, this next one, you yeah, def- I, feel I earned it. You're definitely not going to get this one, but it's it's, it's an intro for some very good trivia, which you'll enjoy. Um, <laughs> who wrote the theme to Growing Pains? I mean, I just want to say it's Alan Thick, but maybe that's not true. It's not true. It's funny, but um, it, it would be it would have been appropriate for him to do that because the theme that was used is a very Alan Thick ish. Yeah, no, thing. it's completely in the Alan Thick wheelhouse. Um, uh, look, just because I really just if it's not Alan Thick, I don't really know anywhere near for sure. I'm going to say Gary Portnoy. It's not Gary Portnoy. I think that's a good guess though. I like that guess. It was um, a couple of songwriters called John Bettis and Stephen Dorff, not the Stephen Dorff you might be familiar with, the star of such films as I actually can't think of a single Stephen Dorff film. The the star of the recently cancelled Fox series Sheriff. There you go. Um, But a different Stephen Dorff. But um, interesting stuff while I was researching this um, question for you. I did do some research this week, Dad. Um, <laughs> Madness. John Bettis uh, wrote hundreds of, th- like his Wikipedia page for the songs he wrote is, is got hundreds and hundreds of songs, mostly by artists you would know, but not necessarily songs you would know. Heaps for the Carpenters and that kind of stuff in the 60s. But mm. the thing that you're going to be interested to know is that he wrote the theme song um, for a movie, a little-known movie called Curly Sue. Um, and the song was called You Never Know and it was performed by Ringo Starr. Oh, wow. Um, Curly Sue. I mean, you know me, I'm one of the biggest Curly Sue heads (laughs) on the planet. I'm pretty sure one of the first conversations we had was about how much you love Curly Sue. (laughs) You know what? I actually really can't stand that film. (laughs) I I have such a fiery dislike for that film. I remember that. Um, Okay, here's another, here's a good one. The theme song from MASH. Suicide is painless. There's two writers, but you'll get full points. Full points if you only get one of the writers. Okay, so we were talking about this on this here very podcast like about yeah. a fortnight ago. <laughs> I thought I might have given uh, that away a little bit. You, you had presented the information that it was Robert Altman's son. So if I just say the word Altman, does that get me a <laughs> half a point? That gets you a half a point, definitely. So it was, um, I, ca- I couldn't remember if that was an on-air or off-air conversation, but um, it prompted me to read up on it. And it's a really cool story where, um, yeah, Robert Altman was trying to um, write, it was really funny. He wanted to write a song that was um, incredibly, his brief was to the songwriters and that was a, um, I didn't even write the, the guy that wrote the music's name down. Um, and he had a bunch of professional songwriters come in to write the lyrics, but he, he felt like they weren't dumb enough to um, really have the broad impact he wanted to have from that song. And he wanted it to be really, really bass. And he used words like stupid. Um, so he, um, which actually makes sense for what it was supposed to be. So it was supposed to be the introductory thing to a movie. Yeah. And yeah. So for a movie, you don't want it to be too clever because you're really sort of, ne- and particularly back then in the seventies where the idea was that you'd see it maybe once or twice in a cinema and you probably wouldn't really see it again. It's pre home video. Yeah, exactly. And so the idea is that people don't necessarily have that and come to it on like the 12th viewing go, that's what it's all about. It kind of just needs to be there, like riding on the tin. And the, um, of course, in the TV show, it's got an instrumental version. But yeah, in the movie, it's got lyrics. And they were, yeah, he got his, he hired his 14 year old son to write the lyrics for it about um, war being bad, basically, was his brief. <laughs> and um, so Mike Altman wrote that song. Um, Robert Altman's on record saying he, he was paid $700,000 to make um, MASH, or, or is it $70,000? Does that sound too much for the time? No, it must have been seven hundred thousand. Sure. No, no. Rob Altman was like a name director for he was already famous show. back then. And, yeah. um, but his son made a million dollars. His fourteen-year-old son made a million dollars on the film's release, basically. And the story that I'd always heard was that he kept yeah, because that got released as a single. So like, it was yeah, actually playing on the radio. That's yeah. right. He would have got a bunch of radio plays. And then I, I, I was under the impression that he was also getting royalties for the TV show as it went on, but I'm not 100 percent sure of that. But. Anyway, because the TV show didn't have the lyrics, yeah, it was probably I'm not, the. I'm not sure. The music it might writer. have just been the music yeah. writer. Anyway, Suicide is Painless, written by Mike Altman from Mash. Um, and here's the last one. Um, the and this will a uh, band name will suffice for four points for this answer, but Veronica Mars. A long time ago. 
So there's a couple of incarnations oh, of the Veronica Mars okay. theme. But the font, the most recent season, well, Danny Warhol's, I guess. That's is the correct the answer. answer you're yes, looking that for. is the correct answer I'm looking for. But I didn't research it well enough to know that there were multiple versions and I've never watched it. Yeah, because the I, sh- I think the season three version is quite different and it's complete garbage. A, a completely different song. It's, I think it's the same song, just a different, oh, different performer. performer. There you go. Um, okay, yeah. Dan, well, I'm going to give you um, three out of five. Solid points Fantastic. for who wrote the theme song too. And I'll give you a solid promise that next, um, the next time when I come to you with 10 questions, they won't be um, mm. specifically related to music and how it fits into television. That was just my go-to. Specifically designed to destroy me. <laughs> no, you did quite well. And you learned something about Curly Sue. Indeed, which is how I try to live every day of my life. If I don't learn something new about Curly Sue, then I'm not doing it right. <laughs> okay, so at the end of round three slash two, um, I'm up yeah. by one, four to three. You're up by one. That yeah. sounds pretty good. That's exciting it times. Is. The challenge on. I have such a great quiz for oh, next man, week. I cannot wait. I've got a very... It's just so perfect. I don't think I'll ever be able to top it. I've got it. a very mediocre one for the week after, but that's okay because yours will still be <laughs> up high, so that'll bring us back down to the same level. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, anyway, Chris, yes. this brings us to the end of yet another Always Be Watching, where we've always been watched. I've absolutely enjoyed it this week, um, and not just because you're one of three people <laughs> I get to speak to every week on a, on, a day, on a weekly basis, make an effort to actually communicate with. Um, it's been fun. <laughs> Exciting times. Chris Yates, uh, people can find you in your bunker. So if, if people found you, that would be awkward. Yes. And you should probably call the police. Um, please don't come and find me yeah. in my bunker in uh, beautiful Wollongong. I gave him a hint. Indeed. Gave him a hint there. No, no one's got a Wollongong. <laughs> people, people from other countries don't even think it's a real name, a real place. This is like the most. No, I mean, I don't believe it's a real place. And I've been there. Anyway, Chris, uh, people can find me in the various places on the internet that you might find a dashing young gentleman like myself. Um, so, you know, social media and stuff. Uh, you can find me at the Dan Barras. Uh, you can check out Always Be Watching on Facebook. You can visit the Always Be Watching website, which is alwaysbewatching.com. How do I come up with this it's sort of brilliant. thing? Genius. Chris Yates, if much like the people listening right now, you've enjoyed this podcast, leave a review, tell your friends share it on social media, whatever, you know, just get the word out. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dan. I will look forward to chatting to you again next week. 